Today's scripture reading comes from the book of Matthew, chapter 6, verses 5 through 8. I'll be reading through the ESV version. And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and the street corners, that they may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have already received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. This is the word of God. It's my pleasure to, um, to tell you a little bit about our guest speaker for today. I'm going to read this so I don't mess it up. <laughs> uh, William Cottrell was born and raised just southwest of London in a small town called Chessington. He grew up in the church and came to Christ when he was in his mid-teens. Will studied English literature for undergrad and music for his master's degree, but always felt the call to full-time ministry, either overseas mission, uh, particularly in Japan, or pastoral mission ministry. After a year in mission and working in his church, he took a job as a teacher in a private school for two years teaching English and history. At the encouragement of the eldership of his home church, he then transitioned to Gordon-Conwell Theological Seminary to pursue ministry training in order to go into full-time pastoral ministry. Will enjoys cooking, playing jazz, and swimming. Would you please join me in welcoming uh, Will to give our message for today? What an amazing welcome. Thank you. Thank you so much. It's, it's uh, always such a privilege to, to be here with you this morning and to see so many different churches across the North Shore and, uh, and across Boston as well. Um, no, I'm not Harry Potter. I just look like this normally. <laughs> but don't worry, I'm sure you'll get used to it. Why do we feel so stuck when it comes to prayer? I think the surest way to cause anxiety in a Christian is to lock them in the eyes and ask them, how's your prayer life? I can see people squirming in the pews even now as I ask that question. I can feel the tension in the room. It's, it's really there. You see, being asked to preach this morning on prayer is really funny because there is no better way than to make a seminary student or a preacher sweat than ask them to preach on prayer. Actually, I think almost all of us in this room, if not every single one of us, would say that we're not where we want to be when it comes to our prayer life. We always think we can be doing better. There's something more that we could be doing. There's some understanding, some deeper understanding that we have yet to make. As soon as it's mentioned, how's your prayer life, we start to feel guilty, don't we? Why is that? Where does that guilt come from? You see, I think we have these standards of prayer that are held out to us, these titans of the faith, these missionaries and pastors and everyday Christians who, who prayed for hours on end and wrestled with God in prayer and triumphed on their knees, and we think, oh, that could never be me. So we settle for less. We settle for feeling guilty and like we failed in prayer. We get stuck. Why is that? Why is that? I think maybe it's because our attitude towards prayer is founded on the wrong thing. We need to change our attitudes towards it. We want to grow because we know that prayer is so important. It's so fundamental 
to being a Christian. It's, it's a fundamental part of our identity because we know that it's important and we know that we must learn to pray. But maybe the ground from which we're growing on needs to be broken up so that something new can grow. So I want to ask us this morning, how do we become unstuck with prayer? So the good news is prayer is hard no matter which culture you come from. Everyone struggles with prayer. And that's also the bad news. The bad news is we're all stuck with it in some way. So here we are in the Gospel of Matthew. We're in the middle of the the magnificent Sermon on the Mount where Jesus is telling us what life in the kingdom is supposed to look like. And now Jesus is turning to the subject of prayer. And here's what we're given. We are given two errors of prayer that lead us to becoming spiritually stuck. And in in the middle of this passage, we're given the true heart of prayer. Two errors of prayer on the one hand, and the true heart of prayer on the other. Now, I know as we were reading this this morning, you might realize that the ultimate prayer, the Lord's Prayer, comes after this. And you might be thinking, well, why didn't he touch on that? It would have been great to preach on that this morning. Don't worry. I think that we need to focus on the motivations of prayer before we actually look at the technique of prayer. And that's what I really want to focus on this morning. That's where we'll focus our attention. Two errors of prayer and then the true heart of prayer. So firstly, let's look at these errors. See, notice first, as we were reading this, that Jesus just assumes that we will be praying. He doesn't make any distinction of that. It's at the start of verses 5, 6, and 7. He says, when you pray. He's just assuming that that is going to happen. And it tells you something. It tells you that there is no such thing as a prayerless heart. Everybody prays. Everybody is calling out or crying out to something greater than themselves, something higher than themselves, a principle or a goal or an individual or a force. Nobody is prayerless, whether they acknowledge it or not. And wisdom in prayer comes from first understanding that, that everybody has a a leaning towards prayer in some way. So the choice isn't whether or not you'll pray, but how you will pray. That's the choice. Not whether or not you'll pray, but how you will pray. And the most obvious type of prayer that Jesus talks about here is the kind of prayers that really religious people make. And this first error you could call prayer as performance. Prayer as performance. Listen to verse 5 again. And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites. For they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners that they may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. Now there's a key word there. Did you catch it? Hypocrite. Most of us have heard that word before. And we usually use it when a person's actions don't match up with what they say. What's on the surface doesn't match up with what's in the substance of who they are. But if you look at the the word in Greek, what it actually originally meant was actor. Somebody who is a hypocrite was somebody who was an actor. They, They were people that would play these roles and make grand speeches in public to people in the ancient world. And what they would do is they would put on masks as they acted to become different people. 
You may have seen those uh, smiling masks and the sad masks when drama is talked about. That's really where that comes from. They put on masks to become different people. The real person, the actor, would be hidden behind the character. Can you see the link there? See, what Jesus is saying here is that for some religious people, their prayers show that the surface doesn't match the substance. The face that they present in public doesn't align with who they really are deep down at the core of their being. It doesn't match up with who they are inside. They're inauthentic. See, prayer for religious people is just like a mask they put on to seem more religious and seem more moral. But you see, it's not just a problem in the ancient world. It's not just a problem at Jesus' time. Humans are always swapping masks. It's something that we're doing all the time. We live in an age, ironically, where we value being authentic and real. We love authentic and real people. And yet, social media has made us more inauthentic and hypocritical than ever before. We project our best selves to other people, even when we're posting in private. So even in private, we're putting on masks. You see, Jesus is saying here that prayer functions in the same way. Prayer can be like spiritual social media. Social media prayer, projecting our best selves to others so they'll think better of us. You see, these people pray to be seen, so it's become a total performance. See, their audience isn't God. Their audience is the people around them. And Jesus is showing us here that this first error of prayer, prayer as performance, these people have no private prayer life. And that is what makes them fake. When they come to the private place of prayer, they're silent. You see, they don't love to pray, but they love to be seen praying. That is how you spot a hypocrite, which is unfortunately why they can hide so well. And when we're doing that approach to prayer, we can hide so well also. You see, their reward is being seen by others and gaining the respect of people by their impressive performance prayers. That's what it's all about for them. See, the prayer might sound like it's aimed vertically, but it's actually aimed horizontally at everyone else around them. See, this, the hypocrites, Jesus is saying, want to come off sounding respectable and religious and upright and in that, they succeed for the most part. But their unmistakable problem that is in private, they've got nothing to say. They're silent. They're stuck pretending to be somebody they're not. They're unreal and they're inauthentic. You see, I think one of the best and most searching questions we can ask ourselves when we feel stuck spiritually is, what is my private prayer life like? When the door is closed, when no one is listening or watching, do you have anything to say to God? See, if our private prayer life has dried up, then we should be looking at how we might have become dislocated from this true heart of prayer that we're going to talk about later. And let me be perfectly honest with you this morning. This is the error of prayer that I tend towards. Actually, a lot of people who are in ministry or a lot of people who are heavily involved in the church, uh, who are looked up to by people in the church, this is something that we struggle with. We struggle with prayer just being a performance. Even those of us who are known as the Christian at school, 
or somebody who goes to youth group. This is something we struggle with as well. We play the role of being a spiritual person, and we get so used to that that we get stuck behind this mask that we put on because our prayers are focused on our audience. I wonder if this resonates with you. We're constantly wondering how we're coming across, how we're sounding, whether we're sounding smart, whether we're sounding spiritual, how people are thinking about us. But when we come to private prayer, there's very little driving us to pray. We're more likely to scroll through our phones or watch Netflix than we are actually spend time with our Father. See, that's the first error we can make in prayer. Trying to make it like it's all about other people. How's your private prayer life? Has prayer become for you a performance? It's something we need to ask ourselves. But the second kind of prayer that Jesus shows us, the second error, is very different. But it still leads us to getting stuck. You see, in verse 7, Jesus turns his attention to another group of people on kind of the opposite end of the spectrum. We've already looked at the hypocrites. But now let's look at this other kind of prayer. He says this, And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. You see, in those days, non-Jewish people would pray these long, elaborate prayers with specific words that were like an attempt to persuade the gods to listen to them and to pay attention and to be attentive. You see, instead of prayer as performance, for them, prayer was about persuasion. And that's the second error, approaching prayer like it's all about persuasion. They needed to persuade the gods to take notice of them. See, as I was introduced this morning, uh, you mentioned that I spent some time in Japan. And one of the things that really struck me and and puzzled me was that whenever you saw temples, people would come to pray and they'd walk up the steps and there'd be an altar in front of them and there'd be a long red rope with a bell at the top and they would ring this bell before they started praying. And I was really confused by this. So I asked some of my uh, Japanese friends who were with me and they said that that bell is to get the attention of the gods so that they'll then come and pay attention to their prayers and grant them their wishes. It was to persuade them to bend an ear, like they were off doing something else, something different, and they needed to be reminded to come and take notice of what was going on on earth. See, this is a kind of person, Jesus is saying, who prays not sure if they're going to get a hearing. They're not confident. They don't struggle with the hypocrisy of prayer, But they do struggle with wondering if God's actually going to hear them and if he really wants to talk to them. They need to get his attention some way. See, do you see the heart of this problem? They think that God is reluctant to grant their prayers and that they don't have his attention. They might know that he's God, but they're not sure whether he's their father or not. See, for these people, prayer is about overcoming his reluctance, overcoming the reluctance of God to actually grant you anything or even listen to you in the first place. See, the hypocrites thought that it was, prayer was to make themselves look good, but here the Gentiles are trying to persuade God to act in the first place. See, this type of prayer assumes that God is distant and difficult to communicate with and reluctant to listen to you, but they both grow, both of these errors of prayer grow out of an understanding of our relationship to God that is basically a transaction. If I do this, I will get this. If I pray impressively, then I'm going to get the 
the recognition and the love that I'm owed from people. That's the first error. The second error is I need to do these special prayers and pray very long prayers because I need to do that for God to listen to me in the first place. And both of them are lacking assurance. You give something and you get something in return. So how do you break out of this cycle? Whichever one you struggle with, whether you're not really sure if God is listening to you in the first place or whether you're actually praying because you really want to impress people around you, how do you get unstuck? You see, even though it's hard to hear that we have these problems, there is a way to get unstuck. And Jesus is going to show us that way in the second part of what what I want to talk about this morning. Jesus says that we must come to God assured of his presence, his attention, and his compassion. So we've seen this morning that there are two main ways that people approach prayer as performance and as persuasion, and that both ways lead us to getting stuck spiritually because they're disconnected from a real relationship with God. But here, Jesus is going to give us the heart of true prayer, intimacy, and fellowship with God through his fatherly presence. And that's what we're going to turn to now, prayer as presence. Look at verses 6 and 8. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your father who is in secret. And your father who sees in secret will reward you. And then later on, do not be like the Gentiles. Do not be like them. For your father knows what you need before you ask it. You see, this is teaching us that Christian prayer, true prayer, is essentially about the assurance and experience of the presence of God. Jesus is talking about the kind of prayer we all long to experience, secret, intimate, personal, fulfilling. That's the kind of prayer that every one of us this morning wants to experience, where you're in the presence of one who knows you completely who doesn't care how you're scrubbing up, who doesn't care how you're measuring up, and who is not reluctant to listen to you. That is the kind of prayer that we all need. And it's the only kind of prayer that's going to cause you to grow as a disciple of Jesus. You see, it's not obvious in most of our English translations, but every single pronoun in verse 6, that word you, switches from plural to singular. Every pronoun in there is singular, and that is important. That is very important. For most of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is addressing huge crowds of his followers. He's talking about how they should live as a community of Christians and believers. But here in this verse, he's switching to the individuals. He's addressing them more personally. You see, I think what he's doing here is he is showing us how deeply invested God is in each one of you individually here this morning. How it's really important, not just how we are together as a community of believers, absolutely that is, that is vital, but we also need to remember how our individual prayer lives are so important, and how God cares about us each individually. His eye is on the sparrow. He knows each of your personal needs before you've even showed up. That is what we're being taught here this morning. And another thing that stands out here, I'm sure we were reading it, you picked up on it, was the theme of secrecy. 
That word's secret, in secret, your father who is in secret, and your father who sees in secret, that comes up all the time. Did that strike you as odd? How did that make you feel when you were reading that? See, this is saying that where we go to find God is in the spaces where we can be alone together. Have you ever thought about your relationship with God like that? Just want to be alone with him. Strange language, but that's basically what it's saying here. I think the reason for that is that in private, the only thing driving you to God in prayer is God himself. In private, you can't put on any masks. What's the point in hiding from God who knows everything about you anyway? The one sure way to avoid hypocrisy is to pray in private because you can't impress anyone when you're in private on your own. It's just logical. You see, it's need of God, not approval of others in private prayer that drives it. It short circuits prayer as performance because who have you got to impress when you're on your own? Nobody. Who have you got to impress when you're with somebody who knows you totally? Nobody. And let me tell you, it becomes very apparent very quickly when you're praying in private, when you're putting on a face, because you can sense God saying, this isn't you. Talk to me about how you really feel. Privacy in prayer is so important. It guards you against the two errors that we've talked about. So I just want to say this morning, listen to Jesus' practical advice. Trust him with this. He knows what he's talking about. When you pray, go to where you're not trying to impress anyone. Or hide your true self from anyone. Go to your inner room, a place where you can close the door and you can be real with yourself and with God. Do you see the irony? The only place where you can be totally sure of being open is in secret. We're always trying to manage our, our self-image. Actually, much of modern life is about managing how you appear to people. You're constantly editing yourself internally to figure out how you're sounding. You're constantly trying to manage your image so that you're coming across rightly and so that people will like you. The only place where you can be totally open is in private with God, in secret with Him. And I, I want to acknowledge totally that this is really difficult and it can be really hard to do this. Some of us find it difficult to pray for five minutes. Some of us find it difficult to pray even for 10 minutes. I struggle with that as well. It is hard. I want to acknowledge that. But I think that's because we're not often used to being alone with our thoughts, are we? If you were alone with your thoughts for half an hour, you might go crazy. <laughs> that's how I feel. Ministry is all about being around people. And when I'm alone with my thoughts, it can be really hard. But if we get used to being in secret and used to actually being open about what we're thinking, then we will be truly praying. Actually, people in England in years past had this way of describing prayer. They would say, pray until you pray. Pray so that all of the, the noise and the, and the white noise in your head is out so that then you can pray from a true heart. You need to be in secret sometimes, not always, but sometimes when you pray. And that can be hard because privacy in our culture is hard to come by. We've got our phones on us at all times. We have access to one another. Somebody can call you up or text you at any moment. Privacy is really difficult to come by. But if we can set aside regular 
times to leave those things behind and get used to being alone with our thoughts with God, I think we will find ourselves rediscovering the joy, intimacy, and power of prayer. And it's not just because of our technique, because who is in secret? You're not alone. It's your Father who sees in secret. See, we can see that God's private presence is so important in true prayer. But some of you might be wondering how that second error we mentioned above is, is kind of dealt with. Okay, well, we've talked about the hypocrisy side of things, but what about this, is God really going to hear me? What about that side of things? Sure, privacy is a good way to guard against hypocrisy, but how can we be assured that God is really there? How do you know he's really listening carefully? Well, I think it's because that we have the private presence of our Father. See, at its heart, prayer is an experience of sonship, of adoption. I think that's the best summary of prayer that, that I can come up with. When you pray, you experience your adoption by God as your heavenly Father. That is what prayer is all about. And when prayer loses sight of this, it either becomes hypocritical or it becomes lacking in assurance. Those are those two errors. Again, it becomes mechanical. It becomes cold. You lose the joy of it because you've lost the heart of it. See, often I think when we talk about our Father in heaven who sees in secret, we can take this to be negative. Right? It's like Father Christmas. He sees you when you're sleeping. He knows when you're awake. He knows if you've been bad or good, so be good for goodness sake. We can often think about that when we think, well, your father who sees in secret. If you heard that this morning and you basically thought he's going to get you, if you're not praying in secret, he's going to get you, you've misunderstood it. You haven't really heard what Jesus is saying. Now, I've been to a lot of um, Christian homes in the UK and in America, and you know how lots of Christian homes love to have uh, Bible verses or inspirational plaques or quotes or like footprints in the sand, that picture that is always there? There was one that I always used to see, and I, I always thought it was really weird. <laughs> It said, Christ is the head of the home, the unseen guest of every meal, the silent listener to every conversation. Ooh. I always used to think that's really creepy. Isn't that really creepy? It makes you feel like you're being watched, not welcomed. It kind of puts Jesus here as this person sort of standing with his arms crossed, looking at you going, are you praying? Are you praying yet? Hmm. But if I'm totally honest with myself, that's how I often see God sometimes. Do you see him like that? When you hear Father, do you think this? Or do you think this? Be honest with yourself. Often I think this and not this. I think it's a frown and not a smile. I think it's a back turned to me and not arms open to welcome me. We don't think we're being welcomed. We think we're being watched. But you see, this is not the case with God. It's not. He is somebody who knows who you really are, like a spouse, husband or wife, like a friend that you've known for a long time. He knows when you're putting on a front. And I think that this seeing in secret is actually Jesus telling us how much compassion God has for us. Actually, way back in the, in, the, in the Bible, it's one of the places that I love the most, and it gives me chills every time I read it, is in uh, Exodus chapter 2, verses 23 to 25. You don't have to turn to it. But it's uh, the Israelites are crying out under their slavery, and 
you can better imagine that a lot of them are asking, well, where is God? Does he see? Does he know? And it says that God looked upon their cry, heard their cries, looked upon their suffering, and God heard and God knew. See, that's what we're supposed to think about when we hear about God seeing in secret and God knowing our needs before we've even asked him. See, I think, I wonder what your reaction was when you read that God knows your needs before you ask. See, if we think, well, hang on, why bother praying anyway? God knows my needs before I ask him. Why should I even be praying? I think you might have missed something foundational to prayer. I want you to look at it this way. If God already knows your needs, then it can't just be a transaction where you just bring him up to speed on everything that's troubling you or the things that you want. So you don't have to worry about bringing God up to speed because he already is before you get there. So you can just be in his presence. You can just talk openly with him. You see, it's got to be a relationship where you process your needs and fears in the presence of another person. You're not just rehearsing your anxieties or coming with a list. You are processing your fears in the presence of a father who loves you deeply. But as I'm saying that, I realize that this language of fatherhood can be a struggle for many of us. It really can. See, I used to work in a school back in the UK with, with many, many wealthy families. You know, the fathers were merchant bankers. They were managers of hedge funds. They were extremely wealthy. And, and the tragedy was that in so many of those families, the fathers were working so hard that they were never there for their kids. And as a teacher, it was heartbreaking to see the disconnect between these children who just needed a father who would just spend time with them and love them, and these fathers who were so driven by their career that they weren't really around very much, and the kids felt distant from them. I've actually experienced some of that myself in a, in a different way. I, I love my dad to bits. I love him. He is a great father. But his generation, the older generation from the UK, are, are often emotionally unavailable. He was present. He was there. But I couldn't necessarily make an emotional connection. Now, when we hear that word father, many of the experiences that we've had, positive and negative, come up when we experience that language of fatherhood. See, we can honestly take that and, and project it onto our heavenly father. We think it's a one-to-one -one correlation. And I just want to say to you here this morning, if you have struggled with a father in the past or relationship with your father like that, that is not what your heavenly father is like. See, often we can think that he's never home or that if he is home, he can't connect emotionally with us. That is not what God is like. It is not. He is home. He is emotionally available. He's longing to hear from you. He's longing to have a genuine relationship with you. And you have his full attention. You need to grasp that this morning. He's home. And you have his full attention. So you can relate to God as a child to an attentive father. Not like somebody who wonders if they're ever going to be heard. We've all asked that question, haven't we? God, are you really hearing my prayers? Do you really care about me? He cares. He is your heavenly father, not your earthly father. And you see, the reason that I can say this with such confidence is because we can trust Jesus on this one. <laughs> if anyone knows what being a son is like, it's the son of God. 
<laughs> if anyone knows what God the Father is like, it's God the Son, right? I mean, that's just basic theology. He knows what it's like to be the Son because he is the Son. He knows about sonship. He knows what the Father is like. But the wonder of the gospel is this. Jesus takes his sonship, his own status as the beloved of the Father, and he hands it to us. That is the gospel. Jesus taking his status as a son, beloved before the Father, and handing it to you. I want you to think about it. If Jesus was praying, do you think God the Father would be reluctant to hear him? If you were Jesus and you were praying, do you think God would be doing this or this? No, that's ridiculous. Well, why not then for us? Because in the gospel, Jesus takes all of his rights as a son of God and gives them to you, regardless of whether you're male or female or what culture you're from. You have all the rights of sonship that Jesus had. But as I close, I want to tell us one astounding place where Jesus' prayers went unanswered. Actually, if you flip later on in the Gospel of Matthew, you'll hear Jesus saying something heartbreaking. And it's, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? You see, on the cross, Jesus went unattended to and unheard by God so that we could be attended to and heard forever. On the cross, the doors of heaven were shut so that they could be opened for you and for me forever. You see, on the cross, Jesus was ignored so that you and I could have God's full attention. That's how much he loves you. That's what the Father was willing to go through to have you as his child. And now it's all yours and mine by grace. Jesus' claims on the Father are now your claims and my claims by grace. Think about that. You don't have to pretend before other people in prayer. You don't have to worry if he's going to hear you or not. Jesus' claims on the Father are your claims. Think about the boldness and the peace in prayer that comes from knowing that. Jesus' claims on the Father are your claims. So you can avoid the error of hypocrisy. You can avoid the error of persuasion. And you can rest in the true heart of prayer, which is the presence of the Father who loves you. Because of Jesus, God is all ears when you pray. He is in, he is home, he is listening, he loves you. And living into that reality is how you become unstuck spiritually. Do you long for that? Do you, do you long to experience that? I know I do. And like I said, there is nothing more convicting than having to preach on prayer. I am with you in this. We are all on the same journey. But I, I want you to know this morning that your Father loves you and that he's going to listen to you. So I'm going to pray now. I'm actually going to pray the Lord's Prayer. And you can listen to this and just know that your Father loves you. Let me pray for us as we close. This is the Lord's Prayer. Pray then like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. 
Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen.